So again, we're here for Nursing Grand Rounds this afternoon to learn about heart failure education, a guide for nurses. Uh, and I also want to welcome, in addition to folks who are seated here, folks who are joining us online. The learning outcome for today's session is, well, at the conclusion of this learning activity, participants will be able to discuss a plan, a plan of care for heart failure patients that includes use of evidence-based tools and documentation of patient-specific assessment and plans of care. You must attend at least 80% of this presentation in order to receive your contact hour. Neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity and no one refused to disclose. And again, for those who are joining us online, if you have a question, Judy Langhans is monitoring her email. You can email her and she will relay that question to our speaker. And again, her email is judith.m as in nay, dot langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S at hitchcock.org. So I'm happy to introduce uh, Deb Cantlin to you again. I'm sure most of you know her. She's presented for us a number of times on, on uh, topics related to heart failure. Deb has worked uh, in various roles at DHMC for over the past 25 years. And for the past four years, she's in, been embedded uh, within the heart failure pulmonary hypertension cardiology team as a continuing care manager. Since 2017, Deb has been certified in heart failure nursing. She has served as the chair of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Ambulatory Nursing Shared Practice Governance from 2015 to 2019. That's not an easy task. Since 2018, she's been a member of the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses and a member of the Patient Education Committee, and she has published in their publication, The Connection, Nurses' Roles in Hyperkalemia Management. She's been a member of the American Academy of Ambulatory Care Nursing, uh, and the Nursing Sensitive in indica Indicator Team since 2017, and is currently co-chair of that team. And again, she's published in their publication, The View, in pursuit of meaningful nursing sensitive indicators. She's also been a member since 2010 of the American Nurses Association and has published in the ANA blog, Nursing, It's Time to March. Please join me in welcoming Deb here this afternoon. Thank you. I wonder if the lights should be dimmed a little bit. Um, and uh, I'm just going to ask, so I can know my audience, how many of you are nurses here? Perfect. And how many of you uh, work in cardiology or have anything to do with heart failure? <clears throat> That's awesome. Thank you for coming. Um, I'll tell you just a little bit about how this session is going to go today. Can everyone hear me? Uh, the plan for today is I'm going to talk to you a little bit about nursing, and I'm going to talk to you about patient education for heart failure, because they go together. Um, and then um, I've given you all a piece of paper. If you don't have a piece of paper, uh, please get one, and a pen, and then a participatory um, trigger, because I'm going to ask questions and need your uh, responses. And then I'm going to save about 15 minutes when it's over for uh, discussions, questions, comments. Um, 
couple of different times, I'm going to ask you to ponder something. Um, so we'll get started. I, I will ask, my team is all here, they're amazing uh, heart failure care providers. I am going to ask you not to participate, though, because <laughs> you might skew my results. <laughs> So the first thing we're going to start with is, I don't know if any of you know, but the year 2020, that's the year of the nurse. Um, and I I'm, I'm suspect that uh, this means different things to different people. Uh, to me, uh, I look at those words, excel, lead, innovate. Those words all have a meaning to me. And when I think about what does the year 2020, year of the nurse mean, it means this is the year that uh, People pay attention to us, right? Organizations, nursing organizations, hospitals, literature. Uh, they're looking to us to create different ways of, of giving care and promoting our profession. That's exciting. To me, it also means that nurses, ourselves, this is a year I think we're called upon to get it together, to get ourselves together, to unite. Uh, our profession's in trouble. Uh, we're expected to lose uh, half a million nurses in five years, um, combined with 60% of our current nursing staff across the country has been a nurse for less than two years. Um, and if that doesn't scare you, <laughs> um, and that's also combined with our patient acuity. Our patients are sicker and sicker and more complex um, and more technology. All those things combined um, call for united efforts on all parts, not just nursing, but since I'm a nurse, I speak from that perspective. Um, I'm wondering how many of you are, know about this organization, CalNOC. Uh, it was established in 1996, uh, the first nursing organization that was specific to nursing, only for nursing, and it was around helping us do what we want to do and still need to do today is what I'm speaking to, is we need to have uh, leveraging our, uh, what nurses bring to uh, patient care and what, what nurses bring to hospitals. You know, helping us do the research, helping us have the data collection uh, tools that we need. So that was the first nursing specific uh, organization. This one you're probably more familiar with. This is the NDNQI. This uh, was established in 1998, same sort of a mission as CalNOC, you know, how can we help nurses do uh, their job? What kinds of things can we, uh, do they need for support? Um, because we know that nurses, if you give a nurse uh, protocol and standards and, uh, uh, and they have good understanding of what, you know, their patient population, they're gonna give you some really good outcomes and they're also gonna be really uh, happy nurses. <laughs> because they know that what they're doing matters and makes a difference, and it's actually something these organizations have helped us define and measure. You probably, I took this at the Four East a couple weeks ago, you see uh, the top right row, falls, clavsy, cotty, C. diff, pressure, injuries. Uh, those are all directly from the ND and QI support. They're standard nursing measures, they're national, they're endorsed. You can go to any hospital website, look it up. That's what we want to have happen in ambulatory and that's what we're actively, I'm actively involved with nationally, is having some standards around practices that we know nurses can 
uh, improve. Uh, so uh, what happened, just to give you the historic perspective, March of 2019, last year, uh, CalNOC and NDNQI were purchased by Press Ganey. And um, we didn't know about it. And what does it mean that they purchased those organizations? It means that they bought all of our data, all of our research, all of our evidence. It's their license to own it now. We don't have access to it. Um, and so uh, this might be the first time I'm going to ask you to, to write down uh, what this might mean to you as a nurse. Um, so Prescani purchased them in March of 2019, and we did what nurses, I think, tend to do. We sat back and said, let's see what's going to happen. Um, let's just chill out. And I think sometimes that's a good idea. Don't act right away. Be calm. But um, now it's been all this time, and uh, we're starting to reach out. I know the ACN president has reached out to Prescani to say, hey, we've got to move this forward. I'm not going to go on and on about this, but believe me, I could. Um, and you can ask me more questions about it later. Um, the thing that I think is so wonderful about nursing is that we do have standards. We are a profession, and we're accountable as a profession. Uh, the American Nurse Association governs our practice, and we're held accountable. And I wanted to just take this time, because I think sometimes we forget that, what that we're a profession, and what does it mean to be a profession? So I'm just going to take a minute to read uh, the American Nurse Association's uh, call to us as nurses. There is a social contract between society and the profession. Under its terms, society grants the profession authority over functions vital to itself and permits them considerable autonomy in the conduct of their own affairs. In return, the professions are expected to act responsibly, always mindful of the public trust. Self-regulation to assure quality and performance is at the heart of this relationship. So this, this is a time that I'm asking you to ponder. Do you feel as a nurse yourself or as a profession as a whole, we're fulfilling our contract as a profession? Just food for thought. We can talk about it or not talk about it, but if there's something that comes to your mind, I gave you the paper so you could we could maybe talk about it. Um, and then 1982, Dr. Patricia Benner, her, uh, her theories and her foundation to nursing is still very prevalent today. I know in nursing leadership here at Dartmouth, we're still referencing her uh, importance of her work. And I include this in the presentation because I think it's important to take a look at each of these stages. We've all been in various uh, stages of competence, and we, as nurses, will continue to, you know, probably to go in and out of these. But um, I think it's important to take a look and find yourself in one of these clinical competency levels. And um, I think it's an opportunity if you are a novice or you're an advanced beginner. You know, my message to you is you need to find um, a preceptor, a mentor. There's a lot of them still here, even though so many left. There's a lot of really good nurses here um, that can help you. So when we talk about heart failure soon, um, I can tell you there's a lot of good nurses that can help you and be mentoring you with heart failure. I consider myself one of them, but, you know, Carolyn, Lisa, Bethany, uh, another, uh, Mar what's her name? <laughs> 
I'm so bad with names. Margie. Anyway, and Joanne. So anyway, look up, look up your mentors and they can help. And we all need them. So this is a study that was done, you'll notice, in 2015. It's a uh, European study because uh, it was done because we know as heart failure providers that heart failure education doesn't seem to happen as much as we'd like it to happen and as much as it needs to happen. Um, so this study explored why doesn't it happen. Maybe it happens because the nurses aren't so comfortable providing the education. That was their theory and the premise of this. And get ready to participate, except for my team. Um, because I'm going to do a couple of uh, questions with you, and then we'll have a review of how well you compare to this study. So tell me, how comfortable are you teaching your patients about the pathophysiology of heart failure? If you just pick, no one knows who you are, so be completely honest. I'm not going to be able to tell when they're done. Guessing, right? Sorry, when I, when I practiced this, it told me when everybody was done. <laughs> Is everybody done choosing their answer? Okay. So 43% feel comfortable. That's good. 14, not very comfortable. All right. So before we talk about heart failure education, I think it's important to talk about a little history with heart failure and a little of the excuse me, the epidemiology of heart failure. So this study is from, or article from 2013, and it talks about the prevalence. It's um, pretty severe, it's significant, it's increasing. Uh, it's got high mortality. Most people that get admitted to the hospital have it. There's multiple comorbidities. Uh, it's a problem and it's growing. And now it's 2020, and the verbiage is pretty much the same. <laughs> It's uh, still growing, um, but I'm happy to say, and it's one of it's growing rapidly. Um, I think the statistics are one in four or one in five of us will get heart failure in our lifetime. So, um, but what has changed uh, is the treatment and the management of heart failure, and that's the exciting piece for all of us that live in this world. You know, there's so many more things we can do for our patients now to, to make a difference with their quality of life and to address the morbidity and mortality. You know, we do, we talked about the complexities. People go around with left ventricular assistive devices now. They have all kinds of different treatments and surgeries and uh, even medications that are coming to the market. So it, we're managing it better. We're making progress there. And it's, that's good. So what about heart failure? <clears throat> what do you do when you talk to somebody about heart failure, when you teach a patient? What do you do in general, right? You, you meet them where they are. Um, you don't go into the room and start saying, so you have heart failure and this is what you need to do. Um, I like to sit down, the art and science of nursing, I like to sit down and have direct eye contact with them and you know, have, be relaxed and let them tell me, what, what is your current understanding of heart failure? Can you tell me what's going on with your heart? And then from there, you just take it from there, because they take it. They take you with their story. Mostly what I hear is that my, I know my heart is weak. Um, so, yep, it is. It's about a weak heart. It's not working. Um, I always like to try to find out what people do for work, because then I can kind of maybe uh, 
use, the, uh, use some knowledge that they would have um, with their work about their heart. But mostly what works is comparing the heart to the engine of the body. Um, most people know what a heart, uh, car is, and most people know what an engine is, so that works pretty well. Um, and you don't want it to be too complicated, so that's, that's what I like to say. Your heart is not working right. We know that. Um, it's kind of like the engine in your body. It's got a really important job to get oxygen around to all your other important organs. Um, and the good thing is now we know you have it, so now we know what we can do about it. I used to think um, <laughs> that heart failure was all about your ejection fraction. I used to think you either have an elevated or decreased ejection fraction, that's it. Um, I've come to have a newfound respect for the whole right side of the heart. Um, so yeah, the ejection fraction is a, a measure of how much blood leaves your heart with each contraction. We want that to be around 60%. And we know that if it isn't, then your uh, engine isn't working, your heart's struggling, and we have a lot of guideline uh, directed medical therapy that we know can help you, and that's what we do. Um, but also you can have a problem with the right side of your heart, which is there's not so many treatments for. But what that means, if it's the right side of your heart, is that your right ventricle is um, stiff and rigid and not able to fill the cup up to dump it into the left side. Um, and that's harder to treat, and we have less options for that. And then uh, doctors Kono and Gilstrap spend their days trying to figure out why someone gets heart failure because there's so many different reasons why people can get heart failure. You can get it from a viral infection. You can get it from you know, chemotherapy, uh, high blood pressure that goes untreated. You can get it from uh, genetic anomalies. You can have structural problems with your heart. So. They spend their days trying to figure that out because if you can figure out what's going on with your engine, then you know how to manage it better. And then this, uh, I think this is a really powerful slide. This is, uh, I think no matter where you are in nursing, no matter what you do in nursing, uh, I know that Justin Montgomery is in the process of putting together a blood pressure clinic down in Heater Road. Um, and I think I've given him this. Uh, it's essential. I think it's um, it, it, this is a lineal process. These are the stages of heart failure. They, you don't go back and forth in them. If you have stage A, you can expect to go to stage B, unless you're following all the guidelines and the management around stage A. But if you look at that, if you have high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, um, you have stage A heart failure, so uh, we need to get you some uh, guideline-directed therapy, and we need to prevent you from getting into stage B, um, et cetera. I just think that's really powerful. And as a heart failure nurse, uh, there's all kinds of resources available for accessing the guidelines, for teaching, for um, for managing heart failure. This This book is new, hot off the press. I think you should have this on any cardiology floor. Uh, I have one if anyone wants to borrow it. And then heart failure education is, uh, there's a lot of guidelines around what nurses should do with regards to heart failure. Um, I'm going to share some of that with you. 
How comfortable are you teaching patients about their medications prescribed for heart failure? And I'll just let you go for a sec. Everybody done? So not very comfortable. Very comfortable. Okay. Oh, I forgot to tell you guys that um, before you leave, there's all kinds of flyers uh, on that desk right there in the front that, ha that has uh, the references to all this education that you should feel free to take with you. So what about heart failure medication? What do our patients need to know? Um, a question I hear a lot is, why do I have to take this medicine for my blood pressure? I don't have high blood pressure. Um, and that's true. We don't give patients medications to make their blood pressure low, although it is an effect. But I like to remind them, you know, this is the good thing, that uh, we know you have this. We know these medications have been really well studied. And if your heart's going to heal, then these medications are going to help protect it. Um, we don't, our intention is not to make your blood pressure low. But you know what? You need to monitor your blood pressure. You need to call us if it's low and we tell them what the number should be. Um, don't like it below 90. Um, but if they're dizzy or lightheaded, you need to call us. And this is where it's important to figure out who you're going to call, who are you connected with when you leave this hospitalization, who's going to take care of your heart failure. Monitor your blood pressure. Uh, let us know if you have symptoms, but also know who to call. Um, and then what else? You know. Who manages your medicine? Do you take care of your own medications? Does someone help you? Because if someone helps you, then we really should get that someone in here um, when we're discharging you and talking to you about your medicines. And then I really like to push use of a pillbox because, you know, we're humans. We've Sometimes we say, did we take our medicine? Didn't we take our medicine? If it's in your pillbox, you didn't take it. If it's not, you did. Um, so encourage that. And then the other really important piece is, um, can you afford your medicine? <laughs> because people, patients don't often tell us that right away. It's something they're embarrassed about, or maybe they didn't realize they couldn't pay. So it's a good opportunity to make sure you have coverage. If you don't have coverage, we have two amazing uh, women that work in the medication assistance program through the Office of Care Management. They can help figure things out. Um, so we want to make sure we get them connected if they can't afford their medicines before they leave. Um, I think that's it. How comfortable are you teaching your patients about sodium restrictions? Well, good. That's good, because that's it. <laughs> Don't use salt. You're done. <laughs> No, of course not, no. Um, we, we like to tell our patients to try to stick to a two-gram sodium diet, and unfortunately, pretty much everything we eat has sodium in it. Um, I tell patients that um, they should get used to reading labels, and I look at labels with them, but then tell them generally foods regarded as high in sodium are those foods that are pre-cooked, preserved, ready to eat, um, like frozen foods, soups, but also deli meats, cheeses, sauces. Um, and then we really like our patients to get connected with our dietitian, who's going to um, 
connect with them on a deeper level, like who does your shopping, who does your cooking, what kinds of things do you like to eat, because we know that we don't want our patients to you know, deviate so much from their diet that they're not going to adhere to it. So a dietitian is a really essential piece of uh, sodium education, and we love ours. How comfortable are you teaching your patients about exercise? Okay. So what about exercise? Well, we have patients that come to us from all walks of life. We have some patients that come to us in their 20s or 30s or 40s, and they're marathon runners. And, um, and we have patients that we have to peel out of a recliner. So there's a lot of variance uh, in between uh, people's exercise routines. And what we tell them is, we don't want you to start anything new, certainly, following a diagnosis of a heart failure. And um, your body needs to move. You need to exercise. Um, none of us are meant to just sit around. So exercise is important. Um, we want you to not overexert yourself following the diagnosis of heart failure because then you end up setting yourself back. If you, um, That's really good for a healthy heart to push yourself and exercise. It's not good for a not healthy heart. So, And then we know two, that our patients that go to cardiac rehab following a diagnosis of heart failure do better than those that don't. Um, we have an amazing group of uh, cardiac rehab nurses. Um, yeah, so essentially don't start anything new. Balance your rest with exercise, but move your body. Um, I'll let you read and answer this on your own. Maybe I clicked too soon. So the recommendations for heart failure education from the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses is at least one hour of uh, education at the time of diagnosis and then one hour annually thereafter. Um, and these are some really great, these are topics that are available on our website. and. Uh, include the teach-back method. That's the other thing that's important I didn't mention earlier, is that we spend time educating patients, listening to them, um, letting them take us where they take us, and understanding the, them. Um, but when we're done, I always like to ask, so can you tell me one thing, two things maybe, you learned from my time with you today? And that's always really important, because sometimes I think, wow, um, I gave you so much, and you only got that. So that just tells you, you know, they're sick, and they're so you go back. Uh, it's really important to make sure they they understand and don't just think you educated them, so you're good. And then this, I think, is also very, very powerful. Um, when we look at data, I'm a data gal. I want to be evaluated. I want to be held accountable. I want my numbers to be so high. I want our numbers as nurses. I want our numbers as Dartmouth Hitchcock. And, uh, but, but people aren't numbers. And um, this is the thing that I also think about when the year 2020, uh, the year of the nurse, I feel like nursing really could do something about capturing this kind of data. 
um, because we don't capture it well. And um, I'm proud to work at Dartmouth Hitchcock because we do accept all patients, regardless of your insurance. Um, and we take care of a huge demographic, the whole New England area. Um, and consequently, sometimes we end up getting patients that are so, they're so much under that iceberg. They are a huge iceberg. They live with us for months, some of them. So I, I think it's something to be proud of and something where we, we need to look into ways we could fix it. And I, I think nursing could be a huge part of that. Uh, this is an evidence-based note we took from the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses, and it helps us when we're providing education just to pay attention to everything that we need to pay attention to because there's a lot. <laughs> um, and we tweak it every now and again and um, try to make it really, it helps us be patient specific, I think. Um, and I just wanted to share that a couple years ago, my whole team went to, uh, except Dr. Kono, we went to the American Nurse Association uh, Conference, Heart Failure Association Conference, and there was a woman there who was 50-something years old. She'd had two transplants, the first when she was 25, the second when she was 50-something. She'd had like over 98 cardiac biopsies. And she's talking to the whole room. She was a speaker. And she was telling us, oh, you heart failure nurses, you're the best. And just, you know, telling us all these wonderful things. And then she said, um, the one thing I'll say, though, is no one ever in all those years asked me how do I feel about this diagnosis. And I thought, wow. Because if you think about it, right, how we feel affects everything we do. It affects our choices. It affects our behavior. Um, so I've started asking people that. At first, I thought it was weird. But it's not. It really, I get so much information from asking people that. And it, it's uh, something we've added to our notes. Um, this is an example of our notes that you can see are very patient-specific. Um, they're all different because people are all different. That's the beauty of doing what we do. Um, these are guidelines around hospital discharge. And this is, again, something I feel like nurses can really put our hands around and really help manage our patients better. I don't think that guidelines are the be-all or end-all. Mostly I do, but <laughs> but um, I think they're a basis, a base, a foundation for us from which to work from. You know, sometimes we're going to deviate from them, absolutely, but they should be our common ground. Um, and we're an academic medical center, so patients should hear the same message from us, regardless of where they are, if they're in the endocrine clinic or the cardiology floor or down on one west oncology, there are recommendations around what constitutes a safe heart failure discharge. And, um, you know, I've had patients say, well, Dr. So-and-so said I could go home today. And I said, oh, you still have your IV Lasix in. But the other doctor said, so I just think it, it's an opportunity for us as nurses to gather around what we know that uh, is safe and to help us give our patients the same message. Um, the reason I asked you those three questions um, is because the results of that study were that nurses said that they felt most comfortable 
providing heart failure education uh, regarding the sodium, the medications, and the exercise. They felt most comfortable with all three of those. Uh, and it turns out actually those three things happen to be like the most important of all the self-management strategies. And also the results were they happened the least. They occurred the least often. I just thought that was uh, noteworthy. And I worked a little bit with Lisa Davenport about maybe incorporating some aspects of this with our nurses on the floor. Uh, and then uh, this, I, I tossed this out here because um, I think that, I'm not sure I said it clear enough in the beginning, but nurses really need to be actively involved in what's going on in our day-to-day -day work. We need to reflect. Um, it, we need to ask ourselves, are we giving the patients the best care? Did we do the right job? Is there a better way to do this? Is there common gaps or common problems? Um, how can we do things differently to give better care? And am I working to the fullest of my potential? Am I fulfilling my professional duty? Um, there's all kinds of uh, shared governance councils throughout Dartmouth-Hitchcock. If you don't know about them, talk to your manager, talk to, talk to me, talk to um, Kate Williams is your president of the nursing uh, uh, crowd here. So she would love your email connection with her. Um, yeah, I think I'll just end it there. Uh, I had a cute little video, but I thought it would be, I will, you know, I have a lot to say and I have a lot of uh, passion for nursing. <laughs> But I also recognize I'm not the only person, so I really want to hear from you guys. If you have comments or questions or thoughts, if you could share them now, that'd be great. Yeah, you know that we have the ME videos, but we also have, as I mentioned, I showed you the American Association of Heart Failure has different videos. And I think that videos are fine and helpful and as you say, keep me busy if I'm just going to be laying in bed anyway. I just don't want that to be, I want to be really cautious that that's not where it ends because people perceive and take information in um, maybe in a way that it's not accurate. So um, I would wa always want the nurse to be a piece of it, you know, and, and get the teach back. You saw the video on sodium restrictions. What, what's your takeaway? Um, and so where are the gaps from that form of teaching? But I think we do need video, especially for those that don't read. Um, this is sad, but I have a few uh, strategies that I think help because I meet some patients where heart failure is their first time diagnosis, and some people it's you know uh, a revolving door of admissions. Um, and I think you know setting up their expectations of that they're going to be here a few days. Some people say, oh, I just need to come in. They're going to give me stuff, or I'm going to go home to my I'm like, you have 50 pounds of fluid on your body. And that took more than two days. 
So, you know, give us time, and then I think that helps with the not sitting on a LASIK strip and going home in the afternoon expectation. Um, and, you know, my last heart failure patient was here for 10 days. So, yes, I don't expect that, you know, we're going to talk to them an hour a day, but over 10 days, it's 10 minutes, you know, that very easily is, you know, 100 minutes. And that is uh, great education that can be individualized for that patient. Um, and, you know, I also start with, you know, uh, do shop the edges of the grocery store because very often we find that they love eating hot dogs or kielbasa um, seems to be a favorite. Uh, the holidays, we see a little uptick after um, all the holiday indulgences. So, you know, I think there's great strategies that, um, you know, nursing can start with and then pull in the tools as well. Yes. Um, <laughs> Carolyn? Well, I was just going to comment as far as, like, the education while they're in hospital, it's over a time period. And because I don't think many of us tolerate a lot of information over a long period of time. So I'm thinking, you know, the time periods are more like 5, 10, 15 minutes a day, a couple times throughout the day. And whether it's documented in the care plan, what's been educated about for the patient that day, and then you go back the next day and reiterate it, or try and assess whether they remembered something, and make sure you're involving the family members that are part of their plan, or you're assessing the fact that they don't have anybody. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I, I didn't mean to um, state that you had to do 60 minutes straight on education. Definitely, it's in divided times. And um, when we write our notes, we write 10, 15 minutes spent with patient at the bedside. And then again, because it's a patient-specific note, we go back to that note. So I spent 10 or 15 minutes. I talked about this. These are the gaps I still need to address. So, um, and I know that the patient education is documented differently from an inpatient point of view than it is for, for us. But yeah, who could take 60 minutes of straight on education?
don't have that, they just feel dissatisfied with the whole experience. Mm. And things go wrong, right? They don't get their meds or they don't, you know, that that's where gaps in care and serious things happen when transitions aren't smooth. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. The other thing we ask a lot of when we're done educating them or when we say goodbye, we'll call you tomorrow, uh, is when you think about all these self-management strategies that you are going to help you manage your heart failure, does any one of them strike you as going to be particularly challenging or a barrier for you? Because if they say yes and they address something, that's another place for us to, okay, well, We'll chip away at that. Maybe we've got some connections or resources for you now. Maybe we don't, but that's a great idea to put it in the discharge summary. Maybe it needs to be different patient education sheet. Education. We have 
our pharmacy work, you know, work with the medication, discuss about that. The nutritionist will discuss each one about looking at labels and the family members being there. So they will ask, like, okay, this will look at, you know, the back of the label, the pens and things like that. What is equivalent for, you know, two grams sodium, how much that is, and things like that. And it was an expectation of the radiology floor that after the LMAs will wash the patient, that instead of bringing the patient back to the chair in the room, they will bring that to a sort of an education room. So, mm -hmm. if, you know, if patients or families are not available, at least they should have an opportunity for nurse to follow up. So, when they get admitted, it's part of the education, it's part of an order that you must sort of be there in a class, just like continuous every week. So, and they are aware it's part of the expectation, it's part of the order that they must be there in the class. And mm -hmm. so you call after maybe, you know, three-day follow-up, they already have, you know, they know that a nurse will call them, and they already have sort of, you know, the orientation that someone will call them, they know the people from the beginning. So, mm -hmm. and so it, it works with us, and it improves with our readmission rate, that they're expecting and they know what to look at with with their cans, the equivalent, and, you know, for the people that they're working with. Yeah, I think, I think there's a, um, what I'm hearing is that there's opportunity for nursing, a lot of us nursing in this room, to get um, a standard practice in order. I think that's great. We should probably do that, set a little something up that's nursing specific and, and have a plan that we practice, and um, then we can evaluate it. Did it work well? Didn't it work well? Um, Who's on board for that? Jeanette, you? <laughs> yeah. Um, I was wanting to get back to just to see uh, if anyone had any comments about uh, the profession of nursing, for one. Uh, and for two, what does the year 2020, the year of the nurse, mean to you? Could, would someone be willing to share? So I'm not the only <laughs> nursey freak. <laughs> I think that nurses need to understand and, and be proud of the fact that we are a profession. It's not just a job, you know, going to nursing, just, you know, yeah, the money's not bad, but it, it's not about just having a job. And I, I don't know if anyone that what, didn't go into it without more uh, loftier goals, I guess you would say. Um, I think when we're talking about heart failure and patient education, one of the things I like to say to my nurses that I work with is you would never say, I'm too busy to give meds. Education, patient education is one of the most fundamental and important things that we as registered nurses do. And it's part of our professional responsibility. It's embedded within our code of ethics. Um, so. You know, it's not okay to say, well, I didn't have time for that. You're giving me, you're giving me the teach back. I love it. <laughs> so it's really about recognizing everything that is within our scope and within our professional responsibilities. And I would love to see during the year of the nurse that nurses take a long, hard look at our code of ethics. And what am I doing? Am I living up to this code of ethics personally? And professionally, and if not, where can I improve? Because um, I think very, very few nurses are really aware of what's in our code of ethics. Thank you. I could hear from my team now. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the slide? What's the 
mentioned particularly um, with the memory of Nancy Carmella, who was such an amazing university, and not just university, but here in general. On one of the earlier slides, you met Nancy Albert as the first author of one of those papers, and she has a significant leadership role at um, the Heart Failure Society of America. Oh, nice. She's going to be the president of the Human Failure Society. Awesome. And she's the first nurse who will ever be the president of a large national medical society. I need to get to know her. Oh. Yeah. She's been, she's been here. Yeah. Oh. It's awesome. Any other comments? Oops. I'm not a heart failure nurse, but um, couple uh, in an earlier slide you talked about what's beneath the surface of the iceberg, and you mentioned um, adverse childhood experiences or the ACE studies, and also what may be going on at home in terms of folks' relationships, which we as nurses need to look at to determine if something else is going on here. And so I think to Lisa's point regarding the need for education just as much as the need for meds, so is our addressing any emotional factors that, that may be playing a role in the patient's experience or the patient's outcome. So I appreciate you including that in your slide. And as professionals, looking at the whole person, those are some other things that we need to look at so that we can actually achieve improved outcomes for the, our patients. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, so it may or may not be appropriate for me to speak in this venue, but that's never stopped me before. <laughs> <laughs> so I came from a couple of institutions where it was standard practice, um, and I know this happens in the ICU here. It happens less on 40s, so and I'm going to make a plug to see if there's ways or ideas we can come up with in this group to have it happen more in 40s. When the team rounded on a patient um, and my previous institutions, we didn't start rounds on a given patient until the nurse was there. And I realized that the nurses, particularly on 40s, are like maxed out. But there are so many absolutely incredibly valuable things that come out of having the nurse be a member of the team rounding on a patient every day, the same way as the doctor, the intern, the attending, and whoever else. And so I, I realize rounds are tough. I realize that how staff half the time makes you want to like harm yourself. But I think if we can if we can try to stress that as a cultural shift, that that allows a forum for nurses to raise concerns, exactly like you just mentioned, to identify problems early in the course of hospitalization. Hey, by the way. Mr. XYZ doesn't actually have a home to go home to. We need to start dealing with this now so that it doesn't become a problem when you know people are trying to get him out the door. Um, I don't know exactly what the way to solve that problem is, but but even even if it's just for the first part or something, it's, it's just there's no there's no it, it's invaluable. It's just absolutely valuable. And I will tell you, so starting off as a cardiac nurse on 40s, um, right from the beginning, one of the things, and I'll just Shout out to Bruce Andrus, who's probably one of the only attendings during the time, or and Alan was very good too. Was like, okay, wait, where's the nurse? So before, because a lot of times you know, we are in the middle of things, but like if if, if the team makes an, an effort to say, wait, let's <coughs> the nurse here, then they feel included. I think sometimes it's just like they see rounding and they're just like they feel like they're intruding. So I think it both ways. I mean, that's certainly something that Lisa and I and Bethany and and you know two of my nurses here too. But to talk about that for sure, that that is a really important part of their job, but also, right, to be opening, oh, asking where they are. Like, this is starting with the attendant, like, where's the nurse? Let's not start until we have the nurse at the bedside, or while we're rounding. So I think we can be 
I'm hearing there's a, a nursing work group that's being formed right here. Is that right? And then we can add that to it, right? These are things we can try to do differently or better going forward. I think that's a great idea. Maybe I'll cover for you while you go around with the doctors, and maybe you cover for me when my doctors are here for my pay. I don't know. But I'm going to um, send out, uh, try to remember all of you, and send out an email and get something started where we can do some uh, little PDSAs. <laughs> Did you have a question? No. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. I appreciate it. And um, <laughs> be out there. <laughs>